Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Every spring, pregnant harp seals gather off the Canadian Atlantic coastline of Newfoundland and Labrador and the Gulf of St. Lawrence to the east of Quebec to give birth to their pups. Harp seal pups are among nature's most beautiful creatures, well known for their fluffy white fur, big black eyes, and gentle spirit. Their unique appearance and innocence have made them one of nature's most recognizable animals, and their pristine fur has earned these babies the name white coats. Sadly, many of these seal pups won't live past three months of age. This is because every year these seal pups become targets of Canada's barbaric commercial seal hunt. Canada's annual seal slaughter begins on April 9th, and at least 97% of the harp seals killed are between three weeks and three months old. This is when their fur, or pelts, are most valuable. The term hunt implies that there's some type of challenge or pursuit on the part of the hunter. However, today's sealers can often walk to the seal herds from their trucks or drive up to them from snowmobiles. When that's not possible, they take fishing boats out to the ice flows where the seal pups are. From there, they either jump out of the boats and walk right up to the seal pups or shoot them from the vessels. And when this doesn't kill the pups, the sealers, that's what they're called, proceed to walk up to the seals and club them over the head, then hook them in the mouth to drag them onto the boats. About 70% of the killing occurs at the so-called front in Newfoundland, where guns are widely used. However, clubs are still often used to kill seals that have been shot and wounded. The balance of the seals are taken in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, killed with large wooden clubs and hackapeaks, which are large ice pick-like clubs. Sometimes it takes more than one blow to the head for a seal to die, and often they're left to die slowly and painfully on the ice. The seal pups are often gathered in groups and see each other brutally beaten to death. Not yet old enough to swim, they can't get away. Now, who is buying the seal pelts and other products? What sustains this industry? Well, here's a little background, because at first it might seem to be a bit puzzling because the industry has indeed become so small as to be virtually invisible in terms of dollars. In 2016, it generated only $1.6 million in sales, employing a few hundred sealers for the brief season. And progress has indeed been made. In 1983, Canada banned the slaughter of white coats or newborn seal pups. And in 2009, the EU banned the importation of seal products. And two years later, Russia, Belarus, and Kazakhstan banned the import and export of harp seal pelts. So the markets for the pelts are quite limited. It's thought some go to where no bans are in place. Canada's Carino company, the primary harp seal processor, dyes most of their belts black or dark brown for use as trim on coats, hats, and jackets. It's also possible that seal pelts are being mislabeled and smuggled into countries where bans are in place. The sealers are a small number of off-season fishermen from Canada's east coast. Generally, they are looking to make a little extra money, but it's a tiny fraction of their annual income. But the seal hunt continues because it's now driven and funded by the Canadian government and fueled by politics and propaganda. That's right. The commercial sealing industry survives with the Canadian government's support. Now, one way they do this is by spreading the idea that desperate, out-of-work fishermen are killing seals because they have no other choice. But the few hundred off-season fishermen who do the killing earn, like I said, only a small fraction of their incomes from doing so. And the commercial seal slaughter makes up less than one-half of one percent of Newfoundland and Labrador province's economy. That's peanuts. 
another falsehood used to prop up the industries claiming that seals can be blamed for the declining fish populations, especially cod, off of Canadians' coastlines. The Canadian Department of Fisheries and Oceans have shifted the blame of decreased fish stocks to the seals scapegoating them as a justification for killing them. However, there's simply no good evidence for this, and the food web, which includes cod and seals, is highly complex and not well understood anyway. And even John Brattery, the Canadian Department of Fisheries and Oceans, said that there isn't scientific evidence to implicate seals as a detriment to the rebuilding of depleted cod populations. Another way the government props up the industry has to do with the Inuit, who are native to northern Canada. They rely on seals as a big part of their diet. Their practices have nothing to do with the commercial seal hunt. But, and this has gotten a lot worse since the election of Justin Trudeau, there's been a great deal of political propaganda conflating the commercial seal hunt with Inuit seal hunting. This is a manipulative effort to convince the public that the Inuit people will suffer financially if commercial sealing ends. Inuit people in the Canadian Arctic hunt adult ring seals for food, clothing, and other products for local use by the indigenous people. What the Inuit people are doing has nothing to do with the annual seal hunt. And our opposition is to the commercial seal industry slaughter, which is carried out by off-season commercial fishermen. It accounts for 97% of the seals killed in Canada, and like I said, has absolutely nothing to do with the Inuit seal hunting. So even with the shrinking markets and the bans, how many seals are being killed? Well, the official number of seals killed in 2018 was 59,148. This figure does not include the seals who were struck or shot and injured but managed to get away. These seals died a painful death despite not being captured. This also does not include the number of adult seals killed between January and the start of the seal pup hunt in April. This secret number is approximately 11,000. And a bit more about the manner in which these seals are killed. It's regulated by the DFO, that's the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, which specifies a three-step process that must be used for those in the commercial hunts. And I'll tell you, they say it's in place to keep the slaughter humane. But if you read the details, it's absolutely brutal. It's on their website and you can look for yourself, but you can take my word for it. There's nothing humane about how these seal pups are killed. So please join the voices of compassionate people from around the world. Let's end the senseless, brutal massacre of nature's precious wildlife today. This archaic and barbaric slaughter of innocent animals must be stopped. So here are steps you can take now to help end the cruel commercial seal slaughter. Start by doing a little research online. Harpseals.org is a good place to start. Not only will you get a lot of good information, but maybe you'll find a program of theirs you'd like to support. Second, boycott Canadian seafood. Why would you want to support the industry the seal killers come from? Third, urge Prime Minister Trudeau to help these animals by ending federal subsidies of the commercial seal slaughter. Send him a letter and tell him you're taking your tourism dollars not to Canada, but anywhere else. And finally, Use your voice on social media to condemn and end this barbaric practice. It's long overdue. Hey, it's Peter here, and you're listening to Animals Today. I want to remind you to visit the website, animalstodayradio.com. You'll be able to listen to all our previous shows for many years now, animalstodayradio.com. And uh, tell us what you think. 
A new study found that vegans pay up to 65% more for a meal at a restaurant than those ordering standard meals. Mm. So, Peter, I guess the notion that you're a cheap date because you're a vegetarian and you just eat a plate of vegetables or a salad for dinner is no longer held, right? Wow, that's interesting. I wouldn't want to be called a cheap date. I object Uh-oh. to the word cheap. Let me ask you something. Yeah, go ahead. You being a guy and all. When you were dating, would you talk among your buddies and ever refer to any of the women you dated as a cheap date? <laughs> Boy, I don't remember. Oh, it's a very on. long time ago. So a cheap date mean little money is needed for them to enjoy the evening or sex after a few drinks no, is likely I, to occur? No, no, I don't think that. I think um, they have a low alcohol tolerance, so you only need to buy them one drink, something like that. Is first, that what it is? For sex to Not occur. sex. Don't okay. go to sex. Oh, yeah. You don't think about sex. Anyway, the stat is from caterer.com. And caterer. Yes. Yeah. And the study was done in the UK. Yeah. Over 2,000 people were surveyed and asked about their dining out habits, and the results showed that dietary requirements were actually an opportunity for profit for restaurants rather than a burden. So raise the prices if you have a special request. Yeah. Mm. I know we don't go out much, but it sure feels like we vegans are a burden to restaurants, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Some of them like they're doing you a favor to serve you a meal. Waiters give you a pinch lip or a sigh (laughs) or slight roll of the eye when you want to modify your dinner. Yeah. Like, I want to substitute avocado or tofu instead of chicken and Oh. No substitution. No soup for you. <laughs> no soup for you. Seriously, I don't find a lot of chefs willing to veer off the menu or make substitutions or but when you try find to one, be creative. Yeah. When you find a place, then you really got to go for it, you know? It's really yes, great. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so the report found that the current revenue of restaurants across the UK could significantly increase if they fulfilled the demands of the special or selective order. According to the data, 25% of UK diners, so one in four diners, are considered selective eaters, with 9% of these opting for vegan meals, 22% vegetarian, and 30% having food allergies. And of these selective eaters, 80% dine out at least once a month, and 60 percent would go out if restaurants were more willing to accommodate them. See? Yeah. We're not alone. Have you heard of this word flexitarian? Oh, yeah. Okay. Like you sometimes eat meat? Yeah. It's a stupid word. Yeah. Okay. They found the selective eaters are more likely to be under the age of 35, identify as female, live in an urban area or on an income of 50,000 pounds or more. They're also more likely to live in the east of the UK. So, bottom line, you pay more if you're vegan. Vegan ingredients are typically cheaper, but the time and effort going into preparing the dinner is usually higher. Okay, I was a little surprised by this study, but it sort of makes sense now. I bet you things will even out as uh, more of us make our voices known. I hope so. Every day in our community, countless animals are starved beaten and abused by people. And sadly, most of these cases go unreported and the abusers get away with it. And in many cases, someone knew about the abuse but did not report it. So if you see someone hurting an animal, or even if you just suspect something, call the police or animal control right away. Animal abuse does not just mean physically abusing an animal. Neglecting animals can be just as bad. So if you see your neighbor's dog being underfed, left without water, or tied up in the backyard without protection from the elements, it is important to report that too. In many cases, you don't even have to give your name, and your phone call may save an animal's life. 
Also, we know that many violent and abusive adults got their start by first abusing animals. It's true, people who harm animals often turn their violence against other people, and that is a cycle we need to break. Remember, animals can't speak out for themselves, so reporting animal abuse can save lives. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Welcome back. You probably know the pet market is really huge, uh, but maybe you didn't know that it's also growing really fast. In 2016, pet care industry sales around the world were $132 billion, and that's projected to grow to $203 billion by 2025. With us now is Simeon Hyman from ProShares to speak about the booming pet industry and to tell us about how it sparked a new investment opportunity. Welcome, Simeon. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So that statistic, which was a number of interesting industry facts you supplied to me, that surprised me, particularly the rate of growth that's expected. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Why is it happening? Where is it happening? What's it characterized by? Well, yeah, to give you just even a little bit more color, uh, pet care in the U.S. has seen twice the percentage growth rate of GDP since 2007, and it even grew through the Great Recession. So, you know, not only is it growing at a, at a quite the reasonable rate, but also pretty darn stable stuff, too. Uh, and look, it's coming from a number of places. First, from the top line, you know, today, you know, roughly almost 68% of U.S. households have pets. So that's even more than have children. So uh, you have a significant increase in uh, pet ownership, but also, look, you have a notable uptick in expenditure, too. You know, everybody cares for their pets like their family. There's so many statistics. 80% say they care for their pets like children. Uh, 79% believe the quality of their pet's food should match their own. And, and we haven't even gotten to uh, pet health care yet, which, of course, uh, I'm sure all of the folks that uh, are regular listeners to to, uh, uh, to your program are very well aware of, uh, of the cost uh, on the pet health side as well. So uh, it's a steady grower, but it's a big grower. Uh, and, uh, you know, pet, pet ownership is expanding both in this country and globally. So do individual households, are they spending more and more each year? Yeah, there's a lot of evidence to that. And again, it, as an example, uh, just more places that it comes from. You know, think about this, 46% of pet owners have purchased clothing or fashion accessories for their uh, for their dogs. And there's been a, a 17% increase year over year uh, in the number of pets that are insured. So uh, it really does come from, from lots of different places. So again, it's an uptick in the number of, uh, of pets in the households that own pets, but also in the expenditures uh, for uh, within that within those ranks as well. And it's a worldwide phenomenon. It is indeed a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, you mentioned those global numbers, but uh, you know, going north of two hundred billion dollars for global uh, uh, global pet industry sales uh, uh, projected as we head to uh, uh, the mid twenty twenties. Bob Vettiri from American Pet Products Association, he noted something about millennials related to this. What, what's his uh, take on this? Well, 
we know that the millennials are to some extent delaying you know having children and how and forming households so to some extent they are certainly a piece of this puzzle with lots of them having uh you know having pets and <laughs> i also heard the theory that hey they have small pets now but when they get a house they might get a big pet and big pets are more, <laughs> more expensive than small pets so there's kind of endless numbers of anecdotal you know risks that that you can uh, uh an anecdote that you can observe in the industry but uh, you know, the top line is, is still the very clear uh, manifestation of those trends. Yeah. So what are the biggest brands or the biggest sectors within this universe? Well, if you want to keep it simple, there's pet health, pet food, and pet supplies. You can get a little, break things out kind of more granular than that, but those are kind of the big buckets as, uh, as we see them. Uh, and and um and those and those are global companies as well. There are companies in the U.S. and globally that that form the uh, the big pieces of that of that market. Some of them, many there are many, if you will, standalone or what we sometimes call pure play companies that are only uh, in the uh, in in the pet care business. And, but there are also some large conglomerates that have very important and substantial business units focused on uh, on the pet care business as well. So all this growth and uh, potential for future growth uh, might excite some listeners, and it certainly excited uh, Steve Cohn, right? So tell us who he is and what he did. Yeah, well, Steve's our head of strategy at ProShares, and he, he was quite passionate about this notion of the, the pet care uh, industry as an investment opportunity. So uh, we rolled up our sleeves and dug in. Uh, and I have to say, this is... Uh, I, I am embarrassed to be on the show as a non-pet owner, mm. <laughs> but, this, but this made me a useful resident skeptic uh, in the firm as we dug into this, and among other things, because you want to know that there's a real investment opportunity, and among other things, one of the things that uh, you note when you dig into the numbers is that these companies make money. Yeah. Uh, if you look as an example at the, uh, uh, at the pet pharmaceutical business, uh, it costs less money to bring a pet drug to market, and when you get it to market, the profitability uh, can be uh, can last a lot longer than in the human market because generic competition is not nearly as uh, widespread, and neither is there as much of an influence of third-party payers or government payers, obviously. Yeah. So the fundamentals are there in addition to the growing size of the market as a whole. Uh, the companies are doing reasonably well. So, you know, that convinced us that, you know, both from a top-line standpoint and a company perspective that there was a real opportunity, and that just then left us with a job of, well, how are we going to put this together? Okay, so there is the ProShares Pet Care ETF, which came out of that. Explain that. Yeah, so the ticker is PAWZ, which we thought was super clever. Yeah, yeah. We always have a, a good time in the office as we sit around and poll our employees and see who's going to come up with the most clever ticker because these are ETFs for those of your audience who are not familiar with them. So they trade, you know, every day. There's, they have a symbol just like a stock. So the symbol for our ETF is PAWZ, pause. Uh, and uh, it follows... Uh, it, it follows the facts at pet care ETF index, pet care index. So what we did in putting together this index or set of rules to create the pause ETF was we started number one. Look, if you're a company that's in the pet care business, this a, a a pure play from our perspective, then you're in. So if you're in the, the pet food business, the pet supply business, the pet health business, you're in. Uh, we also did want to include companies that were conglomerates but had really 
important subsidiary businesses, you know, like a Smuckers or a Nestle. But we did want to keep those conglomerates a little on the small side. So, you know, when you look at the construction of the index and anybody wants to go to the ProShares website, all these rules are well defined. The bulk of the companies are companies that are solely in the pet care uh, business, but we did want to have some representation because there are some, there are some companies that have big business units in the pet care business. That's really interesting. So you've got your rules. You don't really analyze and try to predict which individual company is going to be really good or maybe not so hot. You've just got your... That's exactly right. That, you know, that We don't view that as our job. Our job, we felt, was to create... Uh, it was to create an index and then an ETF that would appropriately re- re- reflect this emerging opportunity, but not try to guess the winners and losers within that realm. And of course, we at Animals Today, we are not uh, endorsing or really giving any financial advice. But if people want to learn more and do their research, uh, where do they go? Uh, ProShares.com is a great place to start. And again, you can just pull up the uh, ticker, P-A-W-Z. You will find uh, the basic information for the ETF, such as the fact sheet. And you'll also find a, a couple of short pieces on the industry, which is some of the facts that we've been talking about in terms of the growth of the industry, where it's coming from, and, and some demographic and uh, financial information about the, uh, the pet care industry as a whole. Simeon Hyman, so interesting. Thank you very much for spending the time with us here on Animals Today. Thank you again for your time. Appreciate it. More with Animals Today after this little break. a really tragic story that happened locally not long ago here in Palm Springs, California. Now, I know this is not the most uplifting way to begin a show, but there are some important points my guest today is going to make that dog guardians need to hear and think about. Today, we're going to be speaking about the risks at the dog park, the risk to both your dogs and to you. So what happened is this. In our city dog park, there are two areas, one small enclosure for small dogs, and then the much larger one for the medium and large dogs. Well, the guardian of a Chihuahua mix, for unknown reasons, let her dog run free in the large dog area. And the dog was attacked and killed by a Rottweiler. Now I have to tell you, the Roddy had been going to the dog park a few days per week for years without incident. And in fact, I personally know this dog because he has accompanied his guardian, who is my patient, to my office. This is a sweet and affectionate dog who would give me kisses and let everyone pet her. So look what happens. Something set her off at the park. She goes after a dog who should have not been in there and kills him. And before you know it, the owner of the Rottweiler is summoned to court. So to avoid that, what he did was relinquish the dog to the shelter, and who knows what happens then. So I would say that this could have been avoided, and the owner of the small dog should be held responsible for the attack. But let's hear from a real legal authority on this. I want to welcome back to the show attorney Kenneth Phillips. Ken is a nationally renowned expert in the law pertaining to dog bites and is very interested in what happens in and around dog parks. Welcome back to the program, Ken. It's good to be here. Thank you. So, Ken, what are your initial thoughts when you hear what happened to this little dog? There was no common sense on the part of the owner of the Chihuahua. I mean, I I feel my heart is broken 
to hear about this accident because I owned a little Yorkie uh, myself, and I was always worried about it. But, you know, to let the dog into the area of the park where the big dogs were was something that legally is referred to as assumption of the risk. Assumption of the risk is basically when you're consenting to being injured, and that's really what went on there. So, you know, this is a this is one of those owner-operator errors that we we see so often when there are uh, tragedies involving dogs. Now, people and dogs really like dog parks, Ken, and generally they are considered desirable community assets. But as this event shows, there are risks involved in visiting them. Do people judge the magnitude of these risks correctly? Well, I don't think that they do. I, I think that there are that just like in any other field, there are people that are more aware and there are people that are less aware. So you have people going to dog parks that, first of all, understand what the risks are. They understand where their dog should be. They look, they watch the dog while it's out there playing to make sure no bad situation is developing. They, they have their dogs on a leash, bringing them in and out of the dog park. So they're following the rules they're doing the right things. But then you've got the other people. And those are not only, uh, they can be people that are unreasonable in terms of how they're behaving at the dog park. They can also be people who are bringing too many dogs into the dog park. So, there, you know, there's a mix of people and, and you just have to keep your eye open. The bottom line is that dog parks, they're great. They're good for the dogs. They're good for the people, but they are not necessarily the safest place for every dog. Right. Some dogs are just not suitable to go to the dog park, right? I mean, what characteristics in a dog don't mix well in dog park? Well, you can't bring a female in heat. Uh, You should not bring an aggressive male dog. And if you have a dog that is uh, timid about being around other dogs, timid to the point that it feels that it has to defend itself, or a dog that wants to always fight with other dogs, you should not bring that dog to the dog park. You should not be training that dog, using other people's dogs to socialize your own dog. You have to use common sense. You must not expose other people's animals and pets to risk by your own dog. So yeah, those those types of dogs are, are not the right dogs for a dog park. We've spoken about the people and the dogs, and I want to talk about the parks themselves. But first, speak a bit about the law, Ken, where responsibility lies for avoiding accidents and bites and fights, and who or what is potentially liable for these incidents. The the rules of liability in a dog park are exactly the same as outside the dog park, with only one exception, and that is that a leash is not required. And if you look at it that way, you'll understand the whole legal concept of the dog park. The other thing to keep in mind is that there, there is no extra protection for you in the dog park. In other words, if something happens, you can't go to the city and say, well, you owe me money because it's your dog park and my dog was killed or my dog was injured and there was a $5,000 vet bill. You, you can't do that because the dog park is a recreational area set up by the government, and as such, you can't bring any kind of a claim because that's what the law is for recreational areas set up by the government. So if you, if you understand that it's exactly the same set of laws as anywhere else except 
that you have the uh, no, you know, you can get by without a leash, number one. And, and number two, you are assuming a certain amount of risk walking in there. That's the basic legal framework. Are dogs supposed to be free from transmissible disease and have current vaccinations to be allowed to go to dog parks? This is one of those common sense uh, things that you, you wish that people would keep in mind. And there's a whole range of, of these things. Of course, they should be free of disease uh, when, they, when they're brought into the dog park, just like they should be free of those other traits that I mentioned a second ago. And, and, they, and many dog parks will post rules. And, you know, when you violate the rules, there's another layer of, of uh, it's not law, but, but let's say it's regulation. And that is, if there are rules posted, you do have to follow those. So that does become part of, part of your obligation. Many of the dog parks do post uh, a, a notice that the dog has to be free of, of anything that, that any kind of transmittable disease or illness. How common is this, Ken, where, where a dog hurts another dog at a dog park? I hear about these things all the time because on, the, on my website, dogbitelaw.com, I have always been open for people to send me email and ask me questions and tell me about what's going on. So every day I'm hearing about some dog getting injured in a dog park. Usually it's a, it's a situation where it's a, you know, it's a smaller dog. Uh, I also hear about people getting injured in dog parks. They get, you know, uh, they get involved in breaking up a fight between their dog and another dog. That's how it usually happens. And somebody gets bitten in the process. You can get bitten by your own dog if your own dog is, is trying to defend itself and is in a panic. So I, I, do hear about, I do hear about accidents every day in dog parks. So let's talk about the dog parks as facilities. What makes a good dog park from a legal and safety perspective, and what are important deficiencies? One of the most important things is where is it located? You you want to locate the dog park in a place where there is sufficient parking. You want it to be downhill as opposed to uphill because of the runoff, you know, when there's, when there's rain and when they, when they turn on the sprinklers for the grass, the, the water takes whatever is in the dog park and can run it down into the neighborhood. You don't want that to happen. Uh, you want there to be uh, adequate fencing. You want there to be double gates so that, you know, the dogs can't just run out when somebody new comes into the dog park. You want it to be at a sufficient distance from residential, uh, from homes and, and even from schools because of the barking and, you know, just the general distraction that, that can occur as a result of the, uh, the dog park being there. So the, these are some of the things that have to do with location. Then after that, you want to have something like a, a committee that is responsible for that dog park. You want some, some people that you can actually talk to, not, not just a sign that says this is what you're not supposed to do and this is what you are supposed to do, because there should be somebody that can, that can help supervise what's going on at that dog park. And, I, and I, I don't mean just supervise the conduct of the people that are using the dog park, but also things like are, are when the dogs dig holes, are the holes being filled in? Are there, is there enough access to water? Are the water, uh, the water fountains and spigots working? Uh, are the benches clean? That type of thing. So, so a, a good dog park uh, 
there's planning with regard to the location, and then there should be people that are part of a committee or or some other such thing that are actually paying attention to what's going on and making sure everything's clean and neat and hospitable for everyone who's using it. Very good. Don't go away. More with attorney Kenneth Phillips. He's the author of DogBiteLaw.com. We're talking about dog parks. You're listening to Animals Today. Listening to Animals Today Radio, your home for serious talk about animals. Animals Today covers all animal related topics and issues worldwide with an emphasis on animal welfare. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Its mission is to improve the lives of animals and to encourage increased compassion and respect for all living beings. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Your donation to Advancing the Interests of Animals will support the ongoing production of Animals Today. Just visit aianimals.org and click Support Us. And thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about hummingbirds. These delightful diminutive flyers comprise more than 300 species with a range from southern Alaska to southern Chile. Thanks to their unique figure-of-eight pattern of wing flapping, hummingbirds can move in precise, quick movements, including backwards and upside-down flight. Hovering by a flower permits their long, specialized tongues to reach the flower nectar before darting off to the next meal. And depending on the sugar content of the nectar, hummingbirds may consume up to their own weight of it each day. Less preferred foods include tree sap, pollen, and insects. But a lot of energy is required to sustain their metabolic rate, which is the highest of any warm-blooded animal. Their name, of course, comes from their characteristic sound produced by the rapidly flapping wings, measured at up to 80 beats per second. The smallest hummingbird, the bee hummingbird, can weigh less than 2 grams. That's less than a penny, and most weigh less than 5 grams. It's easy and fun to attract hummingbirds to your garden with easily available feeders and sugar solution. But here's a tip. They often get stuck in open garages after being attracted to the red color of the door's emergency release cord's handle. Their natural instinct to fly upwards to safety rather than horizontally out the opening can tire these little guys out. But by painting the handle a different color than red or wrapping it with black electrical tape, the birds won't wander into the garage. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Welcome back to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. We're speaking to attorney Kenneth Phillips about dog parks. Ken, what are your pet peeves when it comes to people using the dog park? I think that that one of the worst things, one of the things that bothers me the most is that when a person is just uh, really the wrong person for the dog park or they're bringing in the wrong kind of dog. Now, I'll tell you what I'm thinking of specifically. You could have a dog walker who is using the park, and they're using it commercially for their business, and they're bringing in too many dogs. Mm. So it's not, it's not as though we as, as taxpayers want to support that because we're supporting somebody in their business. I don't think dog walkers with a lot of dogs should be bringing them into the dog park. I think there should be a top limit of, of let's say, three dogs for a dog park. And then similar to that, you've got the the uh, the obedience trainer 
who comes into the dog park or and is trying to you know train a dog there don't do that there that's not really what it's for because it's just not fair to everybody else and then speaking of what's unfair to other people you've got underage kids in other words who bring dogs into the dog park a kid who can't control his dog should not be bringing that dog into the dog right. park similarly on the other end of the scale the elderly person who is making use of the dog park. I, I love the elderly. I'm getting that way myself every day. But I don't want somebody who is who can't control their dog to bring their dog into the dog park. Um, now, it, worse than that is the owner that drops off their dog and disappears. That's wrong because now there's nobody to watch that dog. Who's going to watch it? Everybody else? It's not our responsibility. So the owner who drops off the dog or doesn't watch the dog, I don't like. And speaking of owners, I don't go for I, not, even owning a dog if you don't have insurance. And I'm talking about either renter's insurance or homeowner's insurance. Both of those insurance policies usually cover accidents that are caused by your dog. But you have to check. You have to make sure that there's no exclusion in your policy. The way it works is if your policy doesn't mention anything about a dog, then you're fine. But if your policy mentions that it doesn't cover injuries caused by animals or injuries caused by dogs or injuries caused by your unpopular breed of dog, you got to change your insurance. So I'm, I'm completely against the, the owner who doesn't have insurance using that dog park because if something happens who who's going to pay you know the victim's going to pay right those are the main things that that bother me in in dog parks the wrong people and the wrong and too many dogs can how do you categorize the clients you see? Explain to my listeners the, the elements of your practice. You know, there are three types of people that, that consult with me. One of them, of course, is the dog bite victim because that's the most serious, that's the most serious type of, a, of an incident between a dog and a person. But there are, there are two other things that I have gotten involved in that people don't particularly know know me for one of them is when the dog has been injured or killed in other words where you've brought your dog out for example and your dog is on a leash and some one or two dogs come running down the street and they uh, get in a fight with your dog and now all of a sudden you have to pay a thousand dollars or five thousand dollars in vet bills i wrote a book for that because this is a case that attorneys usually do not directly handle i wrote a book for that called when your dog is injured or killed and that book is is available on my website dogbitelaw.com and then the third type of type of case that people bring to my attention is the case where their dog is being accused of being a bad dog in other words they've been summoned to dog court and they are now facing penalties themselves in terms of fines or restrictions on owning a dog in the future and their dog is facing some kind of a, of a penalty like confinement or even being taken away from them uh, like in the story that you told at the beginning of the show so that is called, I, I wrote a book for that it's called defending your dog win your case in dog court and 
Lori, I, yeah, I'm not in favor of vicious dogs. I don't want anybody who has a vicious dog to even know about my book. But for people who who are summoned before the dog court and have to defend themselves because attorneys don't handle these cases directly because it's very expensive for the dog owner if an attorney gets involved. For people that are, are looking for justice and even people that have a bad dog of, but want to make sure that the sentence is commensurate with the crime, so to speak, those are the people that, that need this book. So those are the three things that I get consulted for. The dog bites, which is the main thing, and then when a dog is injured or killed and when a dog is being wrongfully accused. How do you define vicious? Well, vicious is, uh, that's a very good question because there's two different, uh, two different ways to define it. One, one way is the common sense way, which is that the dog, without any kind of uh, legal provocation, uh, goes after a person or an animal. That's, that is the, that's the common sense definition. And now notice that I said without a, a legal provocation. Right. There are people that will say that, uh, oh, you know, the doorbell rang and that was provocation because it caused the dog to get startled. And that's why the dog suddenly woke up and bit the little kid that was sitting next to the dog. That's not legal provocation. By legal provocation, I mean something like the dog was, was uh, defending itself or the dog was, somebody just hit the dog with something and the dog snapped at the person. Uh, so that's the common sense definition of a, of a vicious dog. Then you have the, the, a different definition, which is when the authorities have summoned somebody into dog court because of some incident that has occurred. And that incident in some, in some cities can be as little as the owner was walking too many dogs. All right. They may summon the dog owner into dog court and then label the dogs as, as being vicious or dangerous under their code in that city. So, so you have two definitions. One is the common sense definition, and the other is you've been labeled. You know, your dog has been labeled a vicious dog. Kenneth Phillips, thank you for educating us about dog parks and what we need to be aware of. Ken is the author of DogBiteLaw.com and will answer your email questions free at kphillips at DogBiteLaw.com. You're more than welcome. It was a pleasure talking to you. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Your Animals Today tip of the day has to do with kittens. If you find a litter of newborn or very young kittens, do not assume the mother has abandoned them. If they are not clearly in distress, their mother is probably hunting for food or in the process of moving them. She may even be hiding nearby until you've gone. You should leave the kittens alone for a couple hours and stay far enough away so the mother feels safe to return. If she doesn't return and you're absolutely convinced they are abandoned, contact your local cat rescue group and ask for advice about your particular situation. And that is your Animals Today tip of the day. 